the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the effect that it has in those who are fallen and lost and without hope, which is each of us here today. We thank you for the salvation in Christ, for the forgiveness of sin, for the comfort that we have to know that our eternal future does not hinge on our perfections and our goodness, but on the goodness of Christ imputed to us by his death in our place and his resurrection power. We rejoice and say together as an assembly to you alone the glory. And we pray now as we prepare later to gather around this table where we remember that everything is about Christ, that our lives depend wholly upon his sacrifice and promise to return. We long for that return. We've sung of it here today. We pray for the day that we will see you face to face and we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. But until then, continue to sanctify us and change us, pulling us away from our sin and to the glory of your great name. And now as we come to the word which we have sung and read, we pray now that we will understand this text before us with all of its challenges and grow in our likeness to Christ and in our conformity to Jesus' will as an assembly. Guide us to that end, we pray. Direct our hearts here. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Human flourishing depends on getting the relationship between men and women right. First, we must rightly understand where men and women are the same. And then we must rightly understand where they are designed by God to differ. Second, we must then rightly apply that knowledge in the outworking of male and female relationships. Succeeding in this is vital for the flourishing of individuals, families, communities, and nations. Sadly, as Rocky prayed earlier, our culture's perspective on men and women is in nuclear meltdown. Large elements in our society are not even willing to define what a man and a woman is. In defiance of basic logic, an elementary rationality. From the abuse of women as sex objects to the angry assault against men as the problem in society, to rampant sexual promiscuity, we inhabit a very sick society. But closing the window for a moment on the stench that's outside, we also need to look to our own house this house. As a microcosm of God's kingdom, the local church must display a culture in which men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, function well together, rightly together, according to the Creator's design. And thankfully, we're not left to our own devices in this quest. With respect to knowledge, we have the revealed word of the one who created male and female. He speaks to us in his word, teaching us his design. And with respect to practice, God's word counsels us how to order the relationships between men and women in the church. 
for his glory, for the prosperity of his people. And we are ever laboring to grow in our capacities to put that together. And the passage before us today provides such counsel. It's not final counsel, but it is a very significant piece of counsel. It hits us with some challenge because the cultural gap between us and the Corinthian church is wide in this passage. All kinds of scary things were said to me as I've worked in commentaries to try to understand this passage. Like, this is the worst in the New Testament. This is the hardest thing that you'll ever face in 1 Corinthians and the like. And I've been sufficiently spooked. But as we move into it, I think some labor will help us to understand it and then get to the principles that are applicable in our setting. Paul starts by warming up the band in verse 2, and then in verse 3 will give us the big picture of what he's saying here as he applies it then in verses 4 and following. But first of all, verse 2, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. We may chortle here. It seems that the Corinthians haven't listened to anything he said. They've they've opposed all of the traditions that he's laid out, all of the directives and commands. What's he saying here? I think what, what he's saying is not being simply sarcastic, but I think that he's probably in context speaking about the fact that they had heard from him and put into practice certain elements of worship. This compliment then softens their hearts to his counsel on improving their gathered worship. You are doing what Christians are called together to do in the assembly, I think is the idea. But there will be changes that we must consider, and that takes up chapters 11 through 14. The Corinthian church had those basic elements in hand, but needed to grow in their gatherings, and here, specifically in this passage, concerning male and female relationships in the church. Before getting into specifics, though, Paul sets a banner over all that he's going to say here through verse 16 with this grand theological statement in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul uses head here metaphorically. It's a figure of speech. He's not talking about a literal head, of course. The overwhelming meaning of head in the Greek speaks of some some level of authority, some degree of leadership responsibility. That's how the word was taken in that day to be understood here in this context. Now, egalitarian Christians, those who would track a different direction than us in these matters, insist that the word can only mean source. This is a major debate and all kinds of things have been written on it, but they really don't have solid evidence of that. Paul's usage is consistent in the New Testament with some degree of authority. So he says, for instance, in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
how Christ could be said to be the source of every believer, but certainly no wife is the source, the husband is not the source of a wife. You see the connection here in verse 22 between submit and headship in verse 23. The connection is very clear. So when he says that the husband is the head of his wife, her appropriate response to that is submission in verse 22. He's not speaking of source, but of some degree of authority. Colossians, whatever chapter that is supposed to be. Uh, I think that's one. one. No, it's two. Is it two? Look, I guess somebody can find it for me. But verse 9, and who knows what 20, okay, that's a copy-paste, that's what it is. Didn't get that changed. Colossians, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, speaking of Christ, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. As the text develops, he says that in that rule and authority, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, the demonic realm has been overcome by Christ who is the head. The head of all rule and authority, quite clearly Christ is not being depicted here as the source of the demonic realm. He is the authority over that demonic realm. This is consistent with the way that Paul uses the word head in Scripture. So let's take the three together. First of all, as we consider the head of every man is Christ, verse 3. This applies equally to men and women, of course, but Paul speaks specifically here to men to bridge to the second couplet, which is his main emphasis, and I think why he puts it in the middle. Secondly, the head of a wife is her husband. On this, we must pause. This is very countercultural in our day, in our setting, and we need to consider how to think about it. The word wife can be translated woman, but the context here calls for wife. Paul takes aim at married couples then, and perhaps at women in the assembly who were born again but whose husbands were not. We should not take the headship of a husband over his wife as in the same sense that Christ is head over her husband. The relationship between a married couple is quite different than that, of course. Nonetheless, a husband is assigned by God to take up leadership responsibility as he relates to his wife. Both are equally made in God's image So he is not superior to her in worth in any way, shape, or form. But in function, he is assigned a leadership role and his wife is to support his calling to lead by submitting to that leadership. This is the Creator's design for human flourishing. For flourishing in our homes, for flourishing as a church. And it means, as we pause on this for a moment, as we consider that husbands are the head of their home, this means, Christian husband, that you are ultimately responsible to lead your family in worship. You are to set the trajectory of your family's overall course toward God. You are called by God to lead your family to church, not follow them there, and certainly not send them there but to lead them to the house of God and his people. 
Secondly, it means, Christian husband, that you are ultimately responsible for the state of your family's finances. It may be wise for you to delegate the bookkeeping chores to your wife, but you will not dump this on her. She may be more frugal than you, and it may be wise for you to give her wide freedoms to control family spending, depending on strengths and weaknesses. But at the end of the day, you are the head of your family, and it is your job to make sure your financial house is in order and your money is invested in gospel enterprise. That's your calling as the leader of your home, as the head of your wife. Third, I just take a few examples, but it means that you are responsible for your children's prosperity. Your wife will spend possibly, very likely, more time with them. She will need certainly great freedoms in nurturing them, which you want to encourage. But the feeding of your infant, the schooling of your kindergartner, the shape and form of your teen's social life and the like falls on you. You're not called here to suggest, by way of suggestion, that you might think about leading your home. You are the head of your wife. You are the responsible leader, and you're to take that responsibility. It means, number four, that your wife's prosperity is your high calling. She is not to be taken for granted. She is not to be assigned doing the things that you just don't want to do and you never really check up. She is to flourish spiritually, physically, socially, romantically, economically, and in every legitimate way precisely because you are her head. As her head, you are to love, protect, and cherish her, to treat her with dignity, sacrificing your life out of love for hers. That's headship. And that, men, is our calling. You are the head of your wife. We emphasize that because that's where Paul is really placing the emphasis here, but certainly big picture, the head of Christ is God, is a theological statement of more depth than we have time to plumb here today. But as with husband and wife, this statement involves no sense of inferiority on the part of Christ. In essence, we use the word ontologically, the Father and the Son are one, one single essence. But functionally, the Son proceeds eternally from the Father. And in the Incarnation, certainly, the Father sends the Son who obeys the Father. So functionally speaking, God is Christ's head. There is, to pan out from this, a divine order to all things. Mess with that order to your own destruction. Honor that order and you will flourish by the grace of God. This is true not only of marriage. We are to display this creative order, this is the point, in our gatherings as a church. 
That order is to be displayed, it is to be seen, it is to be understood as people view us. And so, Paul gives now, with that big picture in view, this is the kind of where we calibrate to, this idea of headship. He now speaks secondly, specifically, of various calibrating points of how we are to think about this relationship of male and female in the church. And he argues, first of all, that we should calibrate worship to what is honorable. Now, there is some sense in which that is culturally conditioned. There's a sense in which it's not. There are many that take this passage and just throw it out the window, say, there, we've gotten rid of that. That is not what we're going to do, is it? But we do have to calibrate it socially, and we'll see that culturally. But calibrate worship to what is honorable. Verse 4. Every man, this is where he's moving now from the big picture, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What does Paul mean by head? Go back to verse 3, head is Christ. That is, he dishonors Christ, his head. Probably, there is possibly at least a double meaning here. He dishonors himself, his own head, but Ultimately, he dishonors Christ, I think is the point. Paul speaks of men in the assembly wearing a veil over their heads, which would have struck them as ridiculous. Something like we might think about a man attending church in a dress and high heels. I mean, this is not going to happen. Well, it has happened (laughs) here. But uh, that's not something you expect. It's, It's kind of ridiculous like that, a man praying with his head covered. So understand in verse 4, Paul is not addressing the point he's really driving at yet. He's just giving this ridiculous concept that any man who would put a veil over his head would be silly, ridiculous. It would bring dishonor to him and to Christ who is his head. Here's where he's aiming, verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, sh- her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. What on earth is that about? <laughs> this is just missing us by a mile and a half. But let's work through it. Verse 5, the but every wife. There's clearly a contrast here now between men and women in worship. She dishonors her head, to be consistent there with verse 3, she dishonors her husband. To come into the assembly and pray and prophesy without a veil on her head is to dishonor her husband. And maybe in a double sense, again, to bring dishonor to herself. All right, here's a little bit of bridging work that can be done with the graphic that we have here. When we go to statuary in the ancient world, we uncover Archaeologists uncover time and time and time again depictions of Roman women with a veil over their head. It, it, it's, it's just ubiquitous in archaeology. So you see in all of these statues, there is a, a veil that covers the hair. There was no uh, practice of veiling the face as such. There was some of that, but this, this was not normal life. It's just a veil that just was put over the hair. What did that say to them? A veil covering a woman's hair was a sign of respect for her husband. 
it said to everyone in the culture, I am a woman, I am a married woman. I, it's similar in statement to what would be true in our culture of wearing a wedding ring. It is saying, I'm taken. I have a man. And at least on some level, there is an expression of respect uh, for, toward that relationship. Heading out into public without that veil by a married woman was either promiscuous, she was hunting for another man, or she was announcing that her marriage was over. And there was a question about what she was actually saying. But she could have been saying one of those two things. So it might be, if culturally speaking, that it hits us the way that it's hitting them, we might say something like, what do we think of a woman, married woman, who puts on some very suggestive clothing, and as she heads out the door in the evening, takes off her wedding ring and sets it on the table? You say, that doesn't look like it's heading well. Does it? It just has that sense that this isn't a pro, this is not honoring to her husband on a, on a number of levels. That's essentially what Paul is saying here in verses five and six. If she does not wear a veil here in public in the assembly as she prays and prophesies, she is bringing dishonor to her husband. That would be true socially, culturally in that setting. So you are failing, says Paul, to calibrate worship to the creative order and God's will for his people. Now all manner of ink is spilled over exactly why they were doing this, women in the assembly. Usually it gets tied to some idea of an eschatological position that they had arrived almost at an angelic level and that there was, this is probably why, what was behind the celibacy within marriage conversation in chapter 7 and all of that, misses us again by a mile and a half. But for some reason, they were, they were thinking that within the Christian context, we have a freedom we don't have culturally. And so we're coming to the assembly and praying and prophesying without veil. And Paul says, this has got to stop. A quick sideline on prophecy. Women were clearly praying and prophesying in assembly. Paul does not correct this. He's obviously not instructing them how to perform a forbidden activity. Nor is there evidence that their prayers or prophecies were silently offered. Prophecy is always public in Scripture. Now this verse is not the end of the matter. There's a lot of other things to consider and we want to return to this theme, God willing, later in the series. But I just want to stress here that we understand prophecy in that ancient context is not teaching. The point of prophecy is the receiving of an oracle from God, a word of revelation from the Holy Spirit intended not so much to instruct the congregation as to encourage the congregation. Most of the ancient churches in that day were almost certainly much smaller than our own and with more freedom for member participation and interaction. They were probably fairly interactive 
to uh, our uh, um, culture. So he's not saying that they were teaching in the assembly. There is restriction to that for good reason in other places that is very clear. It just doesn't deal with it here because it's not the issue. We'll get back to that point, God willing, later. But back to the main trail. What was Paul exercised about here? What concerned him was that for reasons we cannot ultimately know, women were discarding their veils, which failed in that culture to show honor to their husbands as they gathered as a Christian church. This was, in Paul's mind, as ludicrous as shaving their heads. I think he's being overstating this there. He's being dramatic here. He's saying, this is, if you don't cover your hair in, in honor of your husband, why not just shave your hair off so there's nothing there to cover? That's kind of what he's saying. Sisters, wear a veil in church. That's his point. And we'll come back to what that means to us in a little bit. That could cut down the bathroom runs right there. (laughs) Secondly, calibrate worship to the created order. Calibrate worship to the created order. It's his second directive here in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. That is, the man is the glory of God in the sense that he is made in God's image, reflecting something of God's glory, and glorifies God's creative power and wisdom. All that is true of the woman, all of this is true of the woman, but Paul lays stress on her unique relationship to her husband as his glory. In other words, she is created to honor him as her head as they together bring honor to the Lord. Now, verses 8 and 9 are parenthetical. Just to add to that, verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What's Paul drawing from here? This clearly channels Genesis 2, doesn't it? Which was read earlier this morning. Adam was formed first. Then Eve was created from Adam's side and for Adam's completion and joy. So she was created with an irreversible orientation to her husband as the reference point of her life. In a way that is somewhat distinct from his relationship to her. Verses 8 and 9, we could just read Genesis chapter 2. This leads... To where he's really been moving this whole time as he now comes to the point in verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is the heart of his instruction regarding head coverings. Now that word symbol is not in the Greek text. It's added there to give us the sense. And I don't think it's that far off. Egalitarian Christians would say it's totally far off. But I don't think that it is. I think what it's saying is that she is to bear, so to speak, the authority of her husband as she worships in the church, and in that day, a veil sent that message of submission to her husband. So verse 10, a wife ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels seems from left field to us, but to them, very aware as we should be of the watching angelic world. The angelic world bends 
to look into what we do. To understand redemption. We see the elect angels don't understand forgiveness. Because they've never sinned. They conceptually understand sin and forgiveness, but they look upon us as we sing this morning of redemption in Christ, and they're amazed. They don't really understand it. But there is a sense that angels then overlook and watch over the creative power of God, His creation, and all that is taking place there, and so are observing the gathering of God's people. As they observe the gathering of God's people, Paul says, you need to have authority on your head. Show in some way, in this way, that your relationship to your husband is one that is biblically rooted, creationally ordered. All right. Sisters, wear a veil in church. That's Paul's command. Why aren't we doing that today? Why are we not wearing veils? This could be a sermon in itself. I'm going to make it just a real short couple of points. But I think we could be developed below uh, quite more thoroughly. But let me just state the the point. The commonplace, society-wide message a woman's head covering communicated in Paul's day is unknown in our culture. So two women walk into church one day, and they sit in the false row, I mean the front row. They sit there, and one's got a hat, and the other does not. Who among us could talk to them rationally and explain how the cat in the hat, the woman with the hat, is honoring her husband and the other one is not? I I don't have anything to go on there. There just is no connection in our society to that point. If we could not explain that, how on earth could an unbeliever explain it? But in all of Paul's discussion here in this chapter, he's talking about what is natural in that society such that unbelievers would draw that same conclusion. Now we looked at the statuary that was up there, those pictures, and say, culture-wide, every unbeliever understood that a woman wearing a veil was demonstrating her connection to her husband. The lady sitting up in the front here in the hat, I can't explain how that works at all, let alone an unbeliever. Now we could go and say, well, it's just something you just do. Because God commands it. It says it right here, wear wear a veil. This leads to the second point, and that is when a symbol loses its original symbolism, continued use of the symbol invariably results in legalism. Everything becomes all about the symbol, not what it symbolizes. Insisting that women wear prayer bonnets in a culture that sees no connection to marriage makes a law out of the symbol and nobody really understands. So the message the church sends is godly women wear prayer bonnets 
Don't ask, just do it. It's a thing of obedience to God. Why is that? It just is. What follows? What follows is such churches then look down on the unhatted woman in church. Why? Because they fail to follow the assembly's rule, not because they are thereby dishonoring their husbands. The symbol that ceases to symbolize becomes an arbitrary law that distinguishes the godly from the godly, from the godly from the ungodly, and nobody really knows why. Now let me pause here in the other direction and say that any woman whose conscience directs her to wear a prayer bonnet should do so. And that woman should be warmly received in this assembly. We should do nothing to violate her conscience if she believes by that that she is bringing honor to the Lord and obeying Scripture. We are not forced to believe what she believes. Nor are we called upon to cater to that wrong application. But she is free to wear that. She would not be free to press others to do so for wrong reasons. And these reasons will suffice here. What Paul is driving at is the relationship between a wife and her husband and how that's on display in the assembly. We will need to find other cultural evidences than wearing something on one's head. Well, verses 11 and 12 now offer a qualification which is vital to avoid misunderstanding from the emphasis here on a woman's submission to her husband's headship. Verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, for as woman has, was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. We're in this together, people, he's saying simply. Every single man on earth owes his life to a mother who bore him. Every human being is either a mother or had one. So men are dependent for their lives on a woman. And a man is a nincompoop if he thinks he's independent of woman. He just isn't. Eve was created out of Adam, and now men are birthed by women. We are in this together, made in the image of God. Do not misunderstand me, Paul says. Third calibration is to calibrate worship to what is proper. And this is somewhat culturally bound. But notice verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. That is a natural covering by God. There is a veil that is there on her head, which is hair. So Paul may refer in some sense to the created order or logic of the universe in which there is a general perception that longer hair for women and shorter hair for men makes sense. But here, in this context, I think it's been well supported. The sense is more like, isn't this natural? Natural within your society, within your culture to understand this. We would not say, it would be wrong for us to say, that a man having long hair is innately immoral and evil. 
We would not say that because of, for instance, number six in the Nazaritic vow, which said, don't cut the man's hair. He's devoted to God with long hair. In Acts 18 and verse 18, it would appear that Paul went for perhaps a year without cutting his hair. It's not that long hair is itself immoral. But that said, on the natural line of things, testosterone assures that men's hair does not grow as prolifically as a woman's hair, and that most men, if they live long enough, will go bald, while most women will not. So what's Paul's point? Since women are naturally endowed with the covering of beautiful hair by God, they can certainly cover their heads with the temporal endowment of their culture. An endowment by God an endowment by your culture. But what matters most is that they see this as a way to signal respect for their husbands. That's the key. They worship as the daughters of God, but they also worship as the wives of their husbands. And as they do so, they reflect God's creative design in the assembly. So Paul concludes, if anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Notice how this lands rather modestly. Not in the, in the words of this is the will of the Lord, based on creative order, but this is the practice of the churches of apostolic connection. So this is the practice of the apostolic churches, but it pulls up short of tying the rule for head coverings to the eternal will of God. What is most important is that the church's gatherings honor the Creator in their cultural context. So, the foundation of Paul's counsel here is not the virtue of draping a thin cloth over a woman's head. That could, in some cultures, indicate reverence. That could indicate honor. And indeed, I think there are certain situations where we travel internationally or into other cultures where it would be very wise to don such a hat so as not to cause offense, so as not to send the wrong message. But the foundation of holding everything that Paul says here is the right relationship in the church between men and women. And the reason that relationship is so important is that when rightly ordered, it brings glory to the Creator and allows the assembly to flourish. So to that end, women of Eden Baptist Church, ask yourselves, I would encourage you, am I worshiping or ministering in a way that sends a message that my husband is irrelevant? Is your functional relationship in the church one of independence from your husband and the men of the assembly. I realize a husband can make that difficult by being disengaged. And that's a different issue. But for those whose husbands are part of the assembly, am I functioning in such a way that demonstrates warm interdependence between the two of us and my honoring of his leadership in our church involvement? We would hope for joyful, interdependent, and conscious reflection of God's creative design. 
Secondly, as men, we are encouraged here to recognize the vital place of women in the worship and ministry of the church. We are partners together in this work. And I think I do speak for the men of this assembly when I say that the women of Eden Baptist Church are awesome. It is unbelievable, the partnership that we have in the work of Christ. We are the church we are because of women's devotion to God. We are the church that we are because of women's devotion to our children and reverence for the men in their lives, from husbands to ministry leaders to pastors. This is not something we need major correction. Rather, I think as a church, we should rejoice in the work that our women do and the way in which they relate to the men of this assembly. We're ever growing, we're ever considering, we need to ever be moving and thinking about this relationship, but I would say again, the women of Eden Baptist Church are awesome examples of wise, courageous, energetic service to Christ, and we would fall apart without you. We know as men to the core of our being, we need you. And we long to be faithful leaders in the service of Jesus. And so, may we together then, men and women, brothers and sisters, know that from the mundane, from how we dress, to how we manage the hair on our heads, assuming there's any there to manage, to the large matters uh, then of teaching and leading and ministering in all of this, may God help us relate as men and women in unified distinction of roles for the glory of God and for the flourishing of his blood-bought assembly. And may the Lord who bought us then be pleased to enrich us with participation in the divine Trinitarian unity through diversity by means of our biblically ordered interdependent life together as men and women in the body of Christ. And may we now express that unity as we commune together at the Lord's table as brothers and sisters in Jesus, reflecting Christ as our head. Father, aid us to this end. Bless this time of worship at this table. May we recognize that here we announce that you are Lord, that you are the head of every one of us. We bow to that lordship as we remember what you have done to permit us into your presence. And may we come rejoicing that we are a man at this table, rejoicing that we are a woman at this table, and striving hereby to demonstrate to a watching world and to the angels that hover about Christ alone. Christ alone. Through him we pray. Amen.